Our culture calls them reality shows, but they're really not. They're designed to show real, behind-the-scenes life on center stage, but few are actual reality. But the winnings are real. Some shows reward their winners with cash or cars, others with a fiancé, yet others with a brand-new business venture. Talent and music competitions promise recording deals and tours. Or if you can fillet and flambe better than most, you may win the opportunity to run a restaurant or be the top chef at a restaurant. Several contests still dangle a million dollars to keep their contestants at the top of their game. But the story of Esther reads somewhat like a reality show script. A whole harem of women was competing for King Xerxes' affection. But the winner did not just walk away with cash or a car. The winner was given the privilege to marry the king himself. Hadassah, whose name was later changed to Esther, entered that contest at the urging of her cousin, and she won. When the royals placed the crown on her head, she was elevated from being Mordecai's cute Jewish cousin to the queen of the entire nation of Persia, seemingly overnight. Now, the mention of God is noticeably absent in the entire book of Esther, but his providence and fingerprints are seen all throughout its ten chapters. God protected Esther from her enemies, and because Esther believed God, God used her and saved her people from annihilation the people through which the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be born. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Good day to you, God's Word for Life listeners. You are listening to L.J. Harry, and you're listening to the God's Word for Life Companion Podcast, which means there's a student guide which you're able to walk through and work through as we work through God's Word for Life. So if you do have the student guide, we are going to be looking at summer 2021, and we're looking at the week dated July 18th, 2021, and the lesson is entitled, for such a time as this. We're reading from Esther chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer, Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me. Neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way, and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. The story of Esther is fascinating. It continually captivates readers. Esther lived during the reign of the Persian king Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, who reigned between 486 B.C. and 465 B.C. Esther lived after the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah in 586, but before the return of Ezra and Nehemiah in 458 and 444 B.C. respectively. Likely no biblical prophet was active during her time period. The prophet Daniel was captive in Babylon when it fell to Persia, but he died shortly after that, and he wasn't present during Esther's day. It appears in a very real way Esther and the Jews who remained in Persia were all alone. 
There's a decree from Cyrus in 538 BC stating the Jews could return to their homeland, which meant many of them left captivity and returned to Judea. But Esther and many of the other Jews did not return. They remained in the Persian city of Susa. So the setting of Esther is one of a captive people living in a foreign land. But God had a plan. Part of that plan involved the King Xerxes. King Xerxes, according to Esther chapter 2, loved Esther. No real reason is given for the king's favor for Esther, but her obedience to her cousin Mordecai is highlighted as a commendable feature of her character. So it's fair to suggest that her demeanor, her disposition were key. No doubt Esther was physically beautiful, but the other candidates for queen would also have been physically beautiful. Esther's beauty was both inside and out. She was wise. She displayed wisdom in taking nothing into her visit with the king except what the king's eunuch suggested, revealing some practical wisdom, for it's likely the eunuch knew exactly what the king wanted, better than anybody else in his court knew what he wanted. And so Esther listened. God's hand was also at work. Although the name of God, the mention of God is absent in Esther, his hand and his handiwork are all throughout the book. God could have saved his people using some other method besides Esther, but in his sovereignty, this is what God chose. God chose Esther to be a part of his plan. Now let me ask you this. Why do you think it's difficult for us at times to recognize God's plan? Esther really didn't see it early on, but later she did. She was chosen to serve an evil king in a foreign land. And that's kind of where we are. We are citizens of heaven. We live in a foreign land. We don't serve an evil king, though. We serve the righteous king. It's easy for disciples of Jesus to forget we are servants of Jesus. He's the king. We live for him. Too many of us are guilty of thinking the church and even God exists for us, but he doesn't and it doesn't. True joy, true peace, true contentment are found when God's people embrace the truth that we are here to serve him. We read in Romans chapter 6, as Paul articulated that people will be servants of something, either servants of sin leading to death or slaves to righteousness leading to holiness and leading to life. Esther really had little choice about whom she would serve, but we have a choice as modern disciples. Esther chose to serve God by obeying her, her cousin Mordecai and submitting to the king's rule. And we are blessed when we obey godly elders and godly authority. Sadly, though, submission has become a curse word in our society. People don't want to hear, many many people don't want to hear about obedience and submission. But obedience and submission to godly authority are two of the most counter-cultural topics in our world, but are both biblical principles. God still calls us to obey his word, submit to his authority. And submission is not blind obedience, where we don't think or feel. Submission is obeying the word of God whenever our natural man doesn't want to obey. It's following God and his word, even when the outcome seems unclear. Submission to God and his word are always right. The king has chosen us just like he chose Esther, so we surrender. Four years after Esther was crowned, Haman, one of the king's nobles, plotted against the Jews. We read that plot in chapter 3. As Haman's plot to kill the Jews began as anger toward one man, Mordecai. Simply because Mordecai refused to bow before Haman. Scripture doesn't explicitly say why Mordecai refused to bow, but most likely because he was a Jewish man, he refused to bow before anyone other than his God. And we read the Hebrew teens, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as we know them in Hebrew, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
refused to bow before an image because that image was not the Almighty God. So these Jews, many of them, held fast to their faith in God and refused to bow and worship toward any other. Though captive and without any resources really to help himself, Mordecai still refused to bow before Haman. Mordecai remained faithful to God, and his faithfulness led him right into the center of Haman's crosshairs. Haman was an Agagite. Many biblical scholars believe this to be a reference to Haman's ancestry as King Agag of the Amalekites described in 1 Samuel 15. It seems the author of Esther is connecting Haman to the wicked king of the Amalekites and to that same tribe that had so long attempted to destroy God's people. Well, consider Haman's response when he learned Mordecai was a Jew. Instead of just wanting to kill Mordecai, Haman tried to kill all of the Jews, all of God's people. It was that enduring hatred from Amalek for the people of God. God's chosen people had been punished and carried away by captives. They were weak, no longer a nation, suffering the consequences of their sin. But it wasn't enough for their enemy. He still sought to annihilate them. People who live for God and are called by his name, we're still targets of our adversary. Our adversary is not content to see disciples of Jesus suffer just from bad choices and sinful decisions. He wants our total destruction. Jesus made that clear in Luke chapter 19, that the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But thank God we have him on our side. God was on Esther's side and Mordecai's side as well. Haman initially lodged his complaint against Mordecai simply that he wouldn't bow and pay respect and homage to him. And this might seem like a small thing to us, but to Haman, it was not. It was all he thought about. He wanted Mordecai to bow just like everybody else was bowing. And he was even willing to kill Mordecai for it because he sought worship. That's no different than the enemy of our soul. He seeks worship. He'll settle for God's people not giving God the worship he deserves, but his ultimate aim really is to receive worship himself. So God's people must be like Mordecai. Whether we're surrounded by support and strength or we're on our own in a foreign land, we must take a stand and worship the only true God. The book of Esther is about God's people being delivered from their enemies, but the battle recorded in Esther began when one man refused to bow. If you are standing when everyone else is bowing, you need to be encouraged to know that your worship matters to God. We may seem insignificant and small at times, but our worship is paramount in the kingdom of God. Every time we worship God, we defeat the enemy. The battle the Jews would fight and win later all began but when one man refused to bow. The battle for worship rages in human culture around the world. In the U.S., Hollywood and the entertainment industry seek the adulation of the masses and unfortunately many times receive it. The world of sports is similar filling stadiums nearly every day of the year as masses of people cheer and shout and dance and clap and lift their hands to celebrate their victories. But may it be said that God's people expend this same energy and worship of the resurrected King of Kings. Truly, apostolics are uniquely positioned for this end-time revival because we preach and teach the biblical patterns of worship, which include expressive praise and worship at every turn. Full theaters and full stadiums are a telling sign that people want to express adoration and adulation, even worship. So let's lead them, except for let's not lead them to an actor or an athlete. Let's lead them to the throne of grace, to the one who deserves all our praise. If you've been in a powerful 
apostolic service and there's been expressive worship, sometimes you can leave church a whole lot more worn out than you came physically. And sometimes it can be tempting to think we have depleted our energy when we worship God. In fact, some groups believe expressive worship is a poor use of energy, which reminds us of the story of the beggar and the rice. Long time ago, there was a poor beggar in a far country who sat each day on the corner begging for rice. And one day, an unassuming stranger passed by and asked the beggar for a piece of rice he had received that morning. The beggar consented, realizing that all he possessed had been given to him, so he gave it away. Later in the same day, the scenario occurred again, and this time the beggar reluctantly consented. Finally, near the end of the day, the stranger appeared again and asked the beggar for some more rice, and this time the beggar was indignant. He said, how can I survive if I continue to give you all of my rice? The stranger smiled and asked the beggar if he had checked his bowl from the morning. So he pulled his bowl down off the ledge, peered in, and was stunned at what he saw. For every grain of rice the stranger had taken, in its place he left a diamond. Now, obviously, the moral of that story is every time we give, we get much more than we gave away. When we give praise to God, we receive vastly more than we give. Mordecai's life really illustrates this. By withholding praise from the one who did not deserve it, Haman, Mordecai reserved his praise for the one who does deserve it, the Almighty God. Have you ever faced some pressure in worship? Where do you see the enemy fighting people today regarding our worship? Do you see the enemy of our soul asking us to give worship to him or to another, or simply not to worship God? How do you see this battle as it relates to our worship? Now, Esther, at this point in the story, faces a very challenging choice. When Mordecai refused to bow, he set in motion a series of events whereby Haman was able to leverage his influence and have the king issue an edict to annihilate the Jews. And Esther was faced with the decision of a lifetime. That decision is said in chapter 4. Mordecai knew about the decree, and he began to wander around the city in sackcloth and in mourning because of what would befall God's people. In verse 4 of chapter 4, an interesting thing happens. The Bible says Esther sent clothes to Mordecai for him to wear and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. It sheds a little bit of light on the words of Mordecai to Esther only a short time in the chapter. Maybe Esther was trying to keep Mordecai from creating a scene. She knew she was a Hebrew. She knew he was a Hebrew. And if it was found out that she, the queen, was a Hebrew, she would no longer be safe in the king's house. So maybe she believed she could secure her family's salvation, their security, including Mordecai's. But in verse 13, Mordecai challenged any notion that she could save her own life by refusing to take a stand. And he told Esther through the messenger, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows, Esther, whether yet thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai delivered the message. Esther, sweetheart, your position, it's not going to save you. It's not going to save your family. If you want to stay silent and fearful and, and hope for the best, that's not going to work. Instead, Mordecai suggested, Esther, you need to speak to the king. Esther faced a true dilemma. If she says nothing, she and her family may be destroyed. If she says something and the king knows she's a Jew, she may still be destroyed anyways. 
She knows her life hangs in the balance. Have you ever encountered a situation so dire you felt like you would never get out of it, but you did because of the hand of the Lord? That was Esther's testimony at the end of the story. She heard and she heeded the words of her cousin Mordecai, and she prepared for battle through prayer and through fasting. Her life was on the line, so she chose to pray and fast for herself and all of her staff. And finally, after praying and fasting, she approached the king. Her prayer and her fasting likely strengthened her resolve to approach him, and it likely created in her a desire for justice and a deeper faith that God, the just judge, would always do what is right. Esther approached her husband, and her husband was pleased to see her. He held out the golden scepter to her. Their culture was not exactly like U.S. culture. Of course, the king would allow the queen to come into the court. But in their day, if the king was upset, having a bad day, mad at his wife, mad at the world, then he did not extend a golden scepter, no matter even if she was his wife. She could be killed for coming into the king's court uninvited. But thankfully, God moved on the king's heart and he extended the scepter. When she had his attention, she invited the king and Haman to a banquet. And when they arrived at the banquet, she did not explain to him why she invited them. She just invited them to another banquet the following day. It seems odd that she would hold two banquets just to make one request, but as we read more of the story, we can see the providence of God in this delay. That night, the king tried to sleep, but he couldn't. So he had one of his servants read the records of the kingdom. This is These were the chronicles of the kingdom. Surely, if he could not fall asleep just naturally, then somebody reading about these facts and figures of the kingdom would cause him to fall asleep. But he could not fall asleep because in those records, the servant read about a story where a man uncovered an assassination plot but was never rewarded for his service, for his loyalty, his courage. That very early morning, Haman came in to talk to the king, and the king asked Haman, what, what should I do for somebody I want to honor? There's somebody in my kingdom I really want to show honor and appreciation. What should I do? And Haman just knew it was him. He had been faithful and loyal to the king, so he suggested everything, roll out all the red carpet, have him ride on the king's horse, proclaim in a parade, this is what the king does for those who want to honor. Let him wear the king's robes. And the king said, that's a great idea. Do all of that. Don't leave anything out. Do it for Mordecai. Haman was speechless. That next day, Haman indeed led the parade and honored the man who would not bow to him. You can see the providence of God, the irony of the providence of God in this story. Then that night, the king and Haman returned for their second banquet with Queen Esther. And that's when she told the king everything, that she was a Jew, her cousin was a Jew, and that Haman was intending to kill all of the Jews simply because Mordecai would not bow. And that night, the king was so outraged, he ordered Haman to be hung on the very gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And a new edict was issued by the king in Esther chapter 8 that would allow the Jews to defend themselves. And defend themselves, they did. Esther could have looked at her life as time and chance, but it wasn't. It was providence. God had Esther where she was, when she was, so she could be in that pageant. She could gain the favor of the king, have the ear of the king, and reveal this plot to eliminate the Jews and allow the Jews to save their lives. And we'll learn more about that 
next time. But before that, let's go ahead and internalize this. Most of us have probably had moments when we thought it'd be easier or maybe even more exciting to live at another time in history. And certainly what God has done in the past, what we read in the scripture, is exciting. But what God plans to do in the future, that's exciting as well. But we're only given the present. We don't know exactly how we would have responded in the past or how we would respond in the future, but we have the choice to respond to God and to our world right now in the present. So let's live each day as a gift from God, and let's live each day in a way that our lives tell God, thank you for allowing me to be alive right now. Let's trust that we are alive at the right time in history and that this is no accident or time or chance, but we are living for God in this present moment because God has called us here and now for such a time as this. Would you please pray with me? And let's ask the Lord to help us to see our present as ordained by God, that where we are and when we are is all ordained by the hand of God. Thank you, Lord, for this exciting time we live in. I do pray help us to see your hand in it, see your providence in it. I do pray, Jesus, you would use us for your glory for such a time as this. Whatever you would have us to do, God, help us not to bow to anyone or anything in this world, but bow only to you, worship you only. I pray for all those who are listening. Use us for your glory, God. For such a time as this, if there's anything we can do to make a difference in eternity, use us to do that. I thank you. I praise you for the present and the gifts you've given us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you, God's Word for Life listeners, for making God's Word for Life a part of your devotion and your walk with God. I have mentioned this before in a few episodes, but it bears repeating. There's a brand new curriculum product coming out called God's Word for Life, and it's beautiful. The content is excellent. The design is excellent. You're going to grow through it. You're going to enjoy reading it, enjoy sharing it, and you can get a sneak peek at it at godswordforlife.faith. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at July 25th, 2021, lesson entitled Elevated to Influence, and it's going to tell the rest of the story of our dear friend and queen, Esther. Looking forward to sharing that with you and looking forward to walking through God's Word for life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at pentecostalpublishing.com.